636, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. We will continue to keep you updated about the mess that is on the roadways um, with some extra traffic reports. The next one coming up in about 10 minutes. Also, this is the last week, at least for the moment, of our Follow the Brewers promotion. Um, This week, we are going to be qualifying a winner to, let's see, um, somebody will be winning our grand prize. We will send them on the road to follow the Brewers. Um, our daily winners get a four-pack of tickets to see the uh, Brewers uh, play a home game versus the Mets. And uh, the trip this week, we're going to send somebody to St. Louis. Um, somebody follow the Brewers St. Louis. This is the last week of the promotion, so be listening. Nine ten, approximately today, your chance to win. Uh, I will tell the story about, you might ask, how can you be on a direct flight from Las Vegas to Milwaukee and experience two different airplanes? Well, there is a story in that, and I will share that a little bit. Yes, um, myself and over 100 and some odd Milwaukee-bound passengers, we did survive Southwest Flight 4736. We're going to all have T-shirts made. All right, let's get started. We start off today's program like we start off every program. Three big things. Big thing number one. Carjackings continue on the mean streets of Milwaukee. Now, the Journal Sentinel has finally figured out that carjacking, something that I could have told them three years ago, carjackings have become a huge problem. We are not talking about just car thefts. And car thefts are a big problem, too. You come out, you find your car stolen. That is a big deal. Now, lots of Milwaukee County judges don't think it's a big deal. Oh, these are just misunderstood young people who are taking the cars. Well, all right, if you need your car to get to work and you come out and it is gone and you're able, maybe they're able to recover it. And if they find it, um, it, a lot of times it's not in a drivable condition Then you've got to deal with the insurance company. Meanwhile, you've got that inconvenience. That is a huge deal to you. Milwaukee County Circuit Court judges, by and large, don't think it is a big deal, especially if it's juveniles who steal automobiles. I happen to disagree. But we are not talking about simple car theft. We are talking about carjackings, the situations where um, you are in your car, or getting in your car, or driving your car, and you are bumped into and then get out of your car, and one or more people come up and through the use or threats of force, lots of times by sticking a gun in your face, they take your car. There have been an enormous number of carjackings over the last several years. Um, Let's see, 2014, there were 354 carjackings. 2015, There were 512 carjackings. Um, Last year, there were 464. This year, so far, it's down, but again, it's early. 68 carjackings reported in the first quarter. They are on a pace then for slightly under 300, uh, but you know, we assume that that pace is probably going to pick up as the summer months come and the weather gets better and the bad guys get out more and more. So it is a huge deal. The Milwaukee police and federal authorities, to their credit, have recognized that we've got to get these people who are willing to stick guns in other people's faces and take their cars. We have to get them off of the streets. The problem is that attitude that is exhibited by the police in trying to arrest and prosecute people is not necessarily shared again by the court system where people are willing to make excuse after excuse after excuse for people who are involved in this now you may disagree with me but first of all i think car theft in general is a very big deal and does not need to be treated with kids gloves but once you get to the point 
where you are taking somebody's automobile through either force or threat of force, putting their life in danger. To me, that is about as serious as it gets. One of the things that you have started to see is for the repeat carjackers, more and more of them are being sent over to federal court, getting them out of the revolving door of the Milwaukee County Juvenile Court, Milwaukee County Court System, getting them into federal court where it is treated more seriously, and the offense in often cases carries mandatory minimum penalties. In other words, you commit the crime, you do the time. You can't have one of these judges sitting there and going soft and saying, well, I, you don't understand this person's background, and I want to give them another chance, and it, it really, well, you know, they shouldn't have done it, but my goodness gracious, you don't understand all the circumstances. Well, what I understand is if you stick a gun in somebody's face and you take their vehicle, I think you need to be in prison, and I think you need to be in prison for a long time. I applaud the efforts to kick some of these cases over to federal court, but here is the reality. You have... Four full-time federal judges. You have, you know, 40 or 50, you know, Milwaukee County Circuit Court judges. And the federal judges, they don't just handle criminal carjacking cases. They handle all sorts of criminal cases, and they handle, you know, all the other different cases. The feds do not have the resources to deal with all the violent criminals that are out on the street. So what is the solution? I think it is clear, and I think it is time for my friends in the legislature to get involved with this. I think for offenses like carjacking, crimes committed through the threat of violence or the use of violence, like sticking a gun in somebody's face, I think it is way past time for, oh, the judges aren't going to like this, mandatory minimum penalties. You steal somebody's car by sticking a gun in their face You go to prison for 10 years, period. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. You go away. And if that were to happen, I think maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but the message would get out that we are serious about this and that unless you are willing to sacrifice 10 years of your life, you don't do this. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think the state legislature needs to say, okay, enough is enough. It's great that the feds are going to help us out, but the truth is they don't have the resources to deal with this out-of-control problem. You've got the robbery task force concentrating on trying to catch carjackers. That's great. Catch them. But once you catch them, the question becomes what happens to them, mandatory minimum penalties to assure that they have gone to prison. One of the interesting things about the Journal Sentinel series that they're writing is they're talking, they're interviewing people who have been carjacked. And they talk about how it is a life changing and not in a good way experience. How, you know, after, you know, you've had somebody stick a gun in your face and take your vehicle, how it forever psychologically screws you up. Can you imagine if this happened to you? You're there with your kids or you're trying to get your bags of groceries in the car or you're driving down Capitol Drive and somebody bangs into you. You get out of a car to inspect the damage and two guys stick a gun in your face. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with mandatory minimum penalties. You do the crime and then you do the time. We discuss next. If you're on the line, hold on. It's 844 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 848, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Brian on the north side. Brian, good morning. You're first. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I think you're, I can't believe it's not 
10 years now. You're very generous with 10 years. I think it should be 25 or more minimum as a person who had a gun pointed to his head and his wallet stolen. Um, you, these judges have no idea what it feels like for something like that to happen to you. You feel helpless. You feel like you're going to die inside your head. You're praying. Um, how, Brian, how long ago did this how, You So you were robbed at gunpoint. This, how, this how, was actually about eight years ago. My um, guess is you still remember that like it was never, yesterday. You never forget it. Yeah. And these judges have no idea what that feels like. When you said minimum 10, I'm a little upset because <laughs> that makes me wonder what the hell it is now. A gun is a weapon. That's yeah. attempted murder, in my opinion. Well, I mean, it, it's all. I mean, the the effect too is even though you weren't shot. I mean, Brian, I I vote my mom um, when she was alive, but before before she had me, when she was a young woman, she worked in a dental office. The dental office was robbed at gunpoint. My mother, till the day she died, could remember that incident. Same situation, having somebody point a gun, you know, between your eyes and hold you at gunpoint. She that. I don't know if haunted was the right word, but that was a feeling that never left her from the time it happened in her early 20s till she passed away, you know, at, at an older age. It was just, it, it, and I think it's that traumatic experience, you know, and people say, oh, well, Brian, you weren't shot. Well, okay, no, but you still, you were haunted by that experience to this day. Exactly. It changed my life. I carry a machete in my car, a baseball bat in my car. Mm. I got a concealed carry permit. All the things I don't believe in, I changed I was raised not to use weapons, or right. and, and it changed my life. Because they, of that. These judges have no idea what this does to people. No, th- thanks for calling. And they say, well, you weren't shot. Well, okay, but, but you know, for, first of all, if you've ever been a victim of, of a robbery, or if you've ever come back to find, for example, your home broken into, even if you weren't there, it's that feeling of violation. You know, somebody has been going through your stuff and taking your stuff. It's that feeling of violation that I, I think always makes you feel insecure. Then you take a situation like Brian is talking about where there is the threat of violence. Somebody's sticking that gun in your face and threatening to take your life. You just psychologically, that that never, ever, ever leaves you. I don't care if they pull the trigger or not. It is a crime of violence or threatened violence, and there are hundreds and hundreds of these being committed on the mean streets of Milwaukee, and and the people who do it have to go away, and they have to go away for a long time. Crystal in Milwaukee. Crystal, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning, Mr. Wagner. How Hi. are you? I am well, thank you. What do you think? Thank you. Well, um... I, I empathize with your previous caller. I really do. Uh, and at the same time, I understand where you're coming from, that there do needs to be some accountability and the penalty. But mandatory sentencing for something like a carjacking, I think, is a little extreme, especially since there is, to the best of my knowledge, they don't have mandatory, mandatory sentencing for more serious crimes like human trafficking or sexual assault. Well, uh, first of all, let me say this, Chris. I, I come from a federal system where there's a mandatory minimum penalty for five. Uh, it's an enhancement. Every time you use a gun to commit a crime, um, it's a mandatory minimum five-year enhancement penalty on top of whatever the crime is. So if the argument is we should have more mandatory minimums in the state system, I'm all in favor of it. You know, I, I have I have no problem with that because one of the biggest frustrations I have is you have a bunch of judges who, uh, again, decide to give second and third and fourth chances to repeat offenders. So I, I guess number and, and that's also true for issues like sexual sexual assault. Mm. 
some and there are judges who give you know several months for someone who gets caught in the act right. of sexual assault. Well, and again, I'm and I'm not just... or a couple of years for somebody who gets caught with some teenage girls or teenage children trying to sell them for profit. And and Crystal, don't get me wrong. If if we want. If we want to make an argument for see, – see, part of the thing is those type of crimes that you are talking about and, – and believe me, this is one of the reasons why I would never get elected to be a judge is because if I were on the bench, people that do that, you wouldn't need to talk about mandatory minimum penalties because I guarantee you, you wouldn't need that. They would be going away to prison for a lengthy period of time. The problem is you have a lot of judges right now in the state court system, particularly in Milwaukee County, who, who will not, for a variety of reasons, do that. And so that's why I think it is important to take that decision out of their hands because we, that's you, you just have to say that that's the price of poker. Now, if you want to make a case, again, for – all right, sexual assault, minute, mandatory minimum penalties. You're not going to have to. You're not going to find any argument with me. What we've seen, though, and the reason why I think you start with crimes of violence like carjackings is because there are so many of them statistically. What five and six hundred a year over the course of the last couple of years? I, I don't. I don't see, thankfully, that there, and I'm not downplaying sexual assault at all, but I think, I, I doubt that you'd see five or six hundred, you know, sexual assault cases in Milwaukee County. So I'm not necessarily, statistically, I'm not necessarily, I don't know if the judges are on a routine basis not handing down appropriate cases to deter the sexual assault. If that's the case, by all means, you know, impose mandatory minimums, take it out of the hands of these judges who don't have the common sense that God gave a goose. I do know carjackings, there are so very, very many of them that obviously what we are doing now isn't deterring people. So that's why I say start with carjackings. But if you want to expand mandatory minimums to other types of assaultive criminal crimes of violence, I'm, I'm all in favor of it. I'm all in favor of it because I believe in accountability. Um, coming up next, big thing number two. The government's going to stay open. How about that? It's 855, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 857, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Big thing number two, the government stays open. Um, the, the government was scheduled to run out of money. There was a temporary resolution that would have kept it open for a few days. It now appears that there has been an agreement with Congress to keep the government open through September. This will allow Congress to work on a, a formal and full-time budget. So it's a continuing resolution. Apparently, President Trump is willing to sign off on this. I understand some people are unhappy. They think, hey, on principle, we should have been willing to shut down the government over you know, funding issues. If you want to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, you just don't fund it. Here's the bottom line. I have been doing this job long enough to have seen the various government shutdowns come and go. First of all, shutdowns are a misnomer. The government doesn't really shut down. To the extent federal employees get laid off, they just it's, it's essentially like extra vacation days. They get to stay at home, and then they always get all the money that they didn't make um, paid back to them. Um, typically, the media, for whatever reasons, lays any government shutdown at the feet of the Republicans, and I see no reason to believe that this would be any different. Plus, with a new presidency that I think most of us want to see succeed, um, I think if the government has a quote-unquote shutdown, whatever that means, it still it sends a message to 
our allies that send a message to the world that the government perhaps doesn't have the stability that it really, I think, does. I believe this is a good thing. I think we do need to stand up for budget reform, and I have no doubt that the Republicans and Congress and the president are going to do it. Uh, it's just you have to pick the timing of your fights, and this was not the right time. Do it as part of the budget. I think it's important. All right, coming up right after the news, big thing number three, Trump of 100 days. And I will explain how you can have a direct flight and still be on two airplanes. Yes, yes, we survived. Southwest Flight 4736. Stick around. I was in Las Vegas. You were in Las Vegas again? Well, I was in Las Vegas because my brother, who I don't get to see anywhere near enough, my brother um, had a quasi-business trip um, to Vegas, and he said, you want to come along? And I said, sure, but what what the heck? So we went out Thursday. We were coming back Saturday. So flight out Thursday, no problems at all. Flight back on Saturday. The I Whenever possible, I like to fly early in the day because my experience has been that the, the chances of getting things screwed up get worse as the day goes on. You hit different delays and stuff. If you fly early in the morning, a lot of times, I mean, the plane is there overnight. You're, yes, it can be screwed up, but the chances exponentially increase as the day goes on. For reasons that, again, pass understanding, rather than coming back earlier Saturday morning, my brother uh, had booked us on like a 310 flight. Okay, so it's supposed to leave Las Vegas at 310, no problem. We get to the airport. I was supposed to leave Las Vegas at 410. We get to the airport and find that the flight has been delayed about a half hour, 40 minutes, because the incoming flight that's going to go to Milwaukee is delayed on the ground in Burbank. Okay, no problem. You understand. It's a half hour. It's no big deal. So we wait, 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 and that half hour turns into an hour. The flight then lands from Burbank to to Las Vegas. We're all sitting around. They then allow everybody to board the plane. So once everybody gets on the plane, the pilot then comes on and says, we have a problem. I'm getting a warning light that says that there's some problem with the air conditioning system, so we're going to have maintenance look at it. Well, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, my guess is this light had been on. You know, why Why did you let everybody get on the plane and then sit down so you have to work on this? So, all right, but we're, everybody's on the plane. It is a completely full flight, so we're all packed into the plane. The mechanics come out. And it then goes on for about 45 minutes to an hour as they are futzing around outside the the plane. All right. Then the pilot comes on and says, good news. Good news. They found it. It's a malfunctioning valve. We're going to replace the valve. It's going to be great. But we've been on the ground so long, um, we, we need to get more fuel. All right, fine. You don't want the plane running out of gas, so out of fuel. So then we sit for a little while longer. And then without any explanation at all, they come back on and say, all right, we've got a plane change, and you have to. Everybody has to get off the plane and go from the C gates in Las Vegas over to the B gates. So this you got to go to a different terminal. You got to walk, and there, there's people in wheelchairs. There's elderly people. There's people with children. So now the flight's been delayed. You've been sitting on this airplane for an hour and over an hour, and now you've got to walk from the C gate to the B gate. All right. All right, that's the nature of this. So then everybody walks from the C gate to the B gate. Well, now you've got a problem because they let you board the plane. We have a winner in the Follow the Brewers contest for today. It is Joe in Jackson. Joe in Jackson wins a four-pack of tickets to see the Brewers play the Mets. He is automatically registered for our weekly drawing on Friday to see the Brewers follow to follow the Brewers to St. Louis to play the Cardinals. Keep listening. More chances to win this week. So in any event, everybody walks from C to B. 
including, God, I felt bad. Like I said, people who were clearly having issues walking, um, and it's a long walk. I mean, you got to leave. You got to. It's not like you're just going three gates down. You're going from one terminal to another, and you know, people with children and stuff. So, anyways, you get there. Well, because Southwest had let people board the plane, nobody has boarding passes. And so they, again, I appreciate that this is federal aviation. You can't just say, okay, now get back on the plane. So then everybody sits around for the better part of 45 minutes as they reprint every boarding pass. Every boarding pass. And then have to figure out how to distribute them. So, okay, everybody whose last name is A through F, come on up and get your pass. And meanwhile, they're they're printing others. And again, I, I understand that there's not a lot you can do about that. So finally, everybody gets in the plane. Bottom line is, gets into Milwaukee eh, two and a half, three hours late. And so instead of getting in at nine something, it gets in around midnight. And then, of course, you got the drive. But but I I understand. And for, I want to say this: I, I think my fellow passengers, this is the type of thing that if you wanted to see air rage, you could understand why this would would happen. Um, but. But everybody, I think, was pretty calm. Nobody had to be dragged off the planes. My big criticism was, all right, why let everybody onto the plane in the first place? If you had a mechanical problem with the plane, get it fixed and then let everybody on. Because the way it was, instead of standing around the gate waiting for them to fix it, everybody's sitting crammed in this little air, in this airplane for, again, the better part of an hour while they're futzing around with this. That's number one. And then number two, because you let everybody get on the plane, you've taken everybody's boarding pass. And so when you move people from – and I understand mechanical things happen. But then when you move people from one terminal to another, you then delay it another 30 minutes, 45 minutes, however long it was, as you have to reprint everybody's boarding pass. If you would have just not let – see, this is what happened with that United flight. You know, if it's overbooked or whatever, if you just – just don't let people on the plane in the first place until you've worked out the problems. Well, then it at least makes matters. I don't know. I don't know if the flight would have gotten home any sooner. I would presume so because we had all these delays. But, I mean, again, it's like, okay, Southwest, what were you thinking? You know, why let people on the plane when there's a mechanical problem? Figure out the mechanical problem, get it fixed, and then let people on the plane because at least they're in the gate area, not crammed into, you know, a hot airplane waiting around for an hour. So for everybody who came up to me on the um, in the in the gates as we survived, you know, flight 4736 or whatever, yes, that's the, that's the story. And, again, it's just I'm – I appreciate that mechanical things happen. I got that. And I think all my fellow passengers, while people were grumbling, were, were remarkably calm and dealing with this. And the, the flight crew was fine. I just, if the airlines would think about this, if you wouldn't have let people on the plane in the first place and taken their boarding pass, let them sit around in the, again, in the waiting area before you get on the plane and say, hey, once we figured this out, because it might be five minutes, it might be 50 minutes, or we might not be able to fix it at all, the situation would have been a lot better. But in this case, the policy and the protocol just stunk.
It's 920, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. A new Netflix series is drawing criticism over accusations that it glamorizes teen suicide. It's definitely generating conversation about a serious issue, but does it go too far? Join the debate with Scafidi and Bill Stett, 1235 this afternoon. All right, we have now passed the 100-day milestone. I'm not sure that there's anything magic about 100 days, but it's a nice round number that the media likes. Every pundit in the world is um, weighing in on how Donald Trump has done for the first 100 days. There's a couple interesting stories. The L.A. Times went out to a a county in Colorado that had historically voted for Democrats but went for Trump. And the, the question that they were asking, again, people was, are, are, are you happy with the job he's done? Do you have buyer's regret? Whatever. And the L.A. Times, I can tell from the way the story is written, is legitimately surprised that most of the people who voted for Trump are happy they voted for Trump. And, and they believe the first 100 days has been a success, and they're, they're getting what they thought they were going to be getting. Um, same thing is true. The Washington Post has a story, um, as well as the Chicago Tribune, that they go out to a, a county in Illinois that voted for Barack Obama, but now voted for Trump. And they're asking people the same question. Okay, it's been 100 days. What do you think of the job he's doing? And the people who don't like Trump don't like Trump, but the people who voted for him say, yeah, we, we think he is doing a pretty good job. All right, the pundits have weighed in. I want to give you your chance. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. When, when I was interviewed for the special that John McCure was, was doing um, that rare, aired last night, it was an absolutely outstanding special, um, my, my, my answer was ask, ask me to give Donald Trump a grade in his first 100 days, and my answer would be incomplete. I mean, I, I think he gets a lot of credit for, again, getting Neil Gorsuch onto the United States Supreme Court. I think that was a brilliant appointment. I think from a foreign policy perspective, he's done a very, very good job as far as, I don't know, perhaps using military might to enhance America's stature in the world, recognizing that unlike the Obama years, when the United States now says, hey, we're drawing a line in the sand, don't step over it, um, we, we actually mean that. Um, I think you always have to be careful with saber rattling, saber rattling. But so far, I, I think Trump has been very, very good with that. I also think a number of the executive orders that he has issued have been right on point. Has he gotten the signature immigration thing through? No, because the courts have tied it up. Um, and there was some heavy-handed rollout. Obviously, the Affordable Care Act repeal and replace is on the well. I don't know if it's on the back burner, but it didn't get done in a hundred days, and you still have tax reform that's out there. But I, I think, I mean, I would give it an incomplete. If you pushed me to assign a letter grade, I'd assign a solid B. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I give the president a B. I think he has been. I think a pleasant surprise in many cases, and to the extent that there's people that are upset with him, I think it is as much, again, style as opposed to substance. You know, stay off Twitter, concentrate on policy. What grade would you give the president for his first 100 days? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I give him, I would say, incomplete, big picture. But if you pushed me to assign a letter grade, I, I would say a solid B. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 923. Nine twenty-six. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, good morning. What grade do you give the president? 
I give him a kind of a gentleman C. Uh, a gentleman C. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The fact is, the fact is, he did get his Supreme Court uh, Gorsuch uh, guy uh, uh, through, and so. But the fact is, they had to do it through uh, uh, through uh, the nuclear option. Yep. Nuclear option. Nuclear option. But uh, the fact is, most presidents do get their Supreme Court nominees through. So I think that's kind of a given. The fact is, he did show some strength in uh, dealing with Syria. And, and uh, hey, I'm one to, to be glad about that. He hasn't derailed the Barack Obama uh, recovery. The fact is my 401K is doing very well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with that. But the fact is when he talks about the big things, the legislative things, the fact is he talks about building the wall. But now, all of a sudden, uh, the, the issue about uh, Mexico paying for it is, is not on the table. The fact is American people are going to end up paying for that. If there is a wall, yeah. <laughs> if, if there is a wall. The fact is he... Uh, he, he talks about the repealing of Obamacare. The fact is, is that they, they they can't seem to come together to deal with it, whether they're going to repeal it or, or keep part of it or what. So, those 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 big legislative things that he's talked about, and also the fact is that the FBI is investigating him and his team, you know, about dealing with Russia and and the tweet about Barack Obama. Uh, uh, um, uh, basically, uh, wiretapping him and his 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 his, his campaign team. Well, you know, that was my point about substance over style. If he right. would, if he would just stay, I I do think that if he had, if he could convince himself to stay off of Twitter on things like that, his, his poll numbers would be five points higher. I just I just believe that because I I mean people just to see some of these things and go, what is he thinking? Why is he doing this at five a.m. in the morning? Yeah, and you know, I'm a moderate Democrat, and I want to see America successful. I want to see people working. You want to see your 401k plan keep going up. Yeah, I want to see my 401k to keep going up. So the fact is, you know, if if the big things don't get done, if if he talks about the tax plan, they don't get done and things like that, uh, uh, he's got problems. And so I I think that's what's looming in the future. So the first 100 days, I'll just give him a C right now and see what he does in the future. Yeah, and that kind of ties into what I say about the the whole notion of of incomplete. Now, in some respects, I think for for people who are moderate Democrats or liberal Democrats or whatever who are criticizing him, for example, he didn't get the health care reform done, and be careful what you wish for because more and more reports are suggesting that 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 is precisely what, at least in in the um, House of Representatives, that is precisely what is going to happen this week, that they do have some new health care package. And again, as I always say, that the devil the devil is in, in the details. The, the key issue to me is all has always been how do you treat pre-existing conditions when you talk about health care how do you deal with somebody who has been insured for their entire life they lose their job and then suddenly they're faced with a diagnosis of terminal cancer or something like that looking at a million dollars in in cancer treatments how do you deal with that person the flip side though of the whole pre-existing condition argument is all right jeff your example is the person who's been responsible, who's had insurance and then through no fault of their own has suddenly lost it or whatever. What about the people that just decide to be, in my opinion, irresponsible, that have health insurance available to them but decide, hey, I'm going to take my chances. I don't want to pay that money out. I'd rather pay money on, you know, what whatever. Um, and then they end up getting sick and they've never had insurance. That's the, that's the more difficult sort of issue because how do you cover somebody who's never participated in the system and how do you deal with those type of costs? So I'm going to be very curious to see 
how you deal with the whole pre-existing illness question, which is one of the large drivers of, of health care. And, of course, when we talk about health care reform, you've also got to focus on the, the it's not just insurance coverage and things like that, but it's what can you do to stop the explosion in health care costs. You've got to figure out, like, the cost side of it as well. So I, I'm waiting to see what comes out, but it, it could be coming out in the next couple days. So the 100-day thing, I think, is kind of arbitrary. Again, I'd give him an incomplete. If you made me, if you put a gun to my head and said you have to give a grade, I, I would say a solid B in large part because of the Supreme Court. But I think over the next 90 days, you're going to see something done with health care, and I think you're going to see something done with tax reform. How that, how we, what we think about it, that's, of course, another story. It's 935, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Packers have their 2017 draft class in hand, but was it a mistake not using their first-round selection on a local product? Greg Matzik doesn't think so. He explains this evening. Tune in, Sports Central at 6.07. Yeah, check that out. All right. Uh, This is sort of an interesting thing. It, It started back in the Obama administration. It's still in order under the Trump administration. We will see how it plays out. Right now, the, the there is a school lunch program. Everybody knows Michelle's, Michelle Obama's like school lunch program. Um, in districts where people do not qualify for free lunches. So what we're about to discuss does not involve people, the kids who, who have free lunches, and it doesn't um, apply to the kids who have reduced lunches, but it applies to the other kids who want hot lunches at school um, and whose parents have the ability to pay. Um, by July, every state is going to have to come up and submit a report to the Department of Agriculture. This is unless the Trump administration rolls it back, um, explaining and developing what the policy is for kids, and again, these aren't the poor kids. These are just kids whose parents have the ability to pay, but who show up at school and don't have money in their accounts. The question becomes, what do you do with those kids? Do you keep giving them hot lunches, or do you do something else? Right now, the estimate is that about 50% of the school districts across the country will not give you will not give kids the the hot lunch if the parents are in arrears or if the kids account is in arrears instead um, you will get a a cold sandwich about three percent withhold food entirely but the general thing is hey look you're not going to get the lunch you know here we're going to give you some cheese on on bread so you have something if you show up and your parents are in arrears They estimate, the estimates are, that there are millions, millions of kids across the country who who are in debt, by them being in debt, meaning that the, the schools have fronted their lunches and mom and dad have not paid in a timely fashion. The problem then is that, you know, the kids, um, the kids theoretically go hungry. Mom and dad don't send the kids to school with lunches, and mom and dad don't put money in the kids' account, despite the fact that mom and dad have it. And so the kid says, hey, I, I'm hungry. Give me something. They call it lunch shaming if all of a sudden you either get no food or, more commonly, you just get the cheese sandwich. And clearly, the previous administration 
and the Department of Agriculture um, with Michelle Obama's guidelines did not like this. So now there is a pressure. There's pressure being put on school districts to figure out what they are going to do. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I know we've discussed this before, but a big story in the New York Times over the weekend, and I, I think this is, is particularly timely. What do you do for the kid? And again, we're not talking about the kids in poverty. We're not talking about the kids who can't afford the lunch. We are talking about the kids whose parents um, are too lazy to send the kid to school, pack a lunch for the kid, or have the kid pack a lunch for himself. That's number one. And number two are in a situation where they have also uh, declined, almost always after being given notice, they have declined to, in a timely fashion, put money into the kid's lunch account. Do you continue giving the kid a hot lunch? and hoping that somewhere along the line you're going to be able to collect the money. Do you give the kid the cold sandwich, but then is that lunch shaming because other kids will start making fun of them? And does it matter maybe about how old the kid is? I mean, do we treat somebody who's in third grade differently than we treat somebody who's a senior in high school? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I recognize you might not agree with me on this, but I think the truth of the matter is... First of all, I, there's lots of times that people skip lunches, and, and I, don't, I don't necessarily buy this idea that, oh, my gosh, nobody's going to be able to learn if you don't get a sandwich for lunch. That's number one. Number two, I don't think school districts can – I don't think school districts and the taxpayers in school districts should be obligated to continue to – just like I don't think restaurants should – you know, that the sandwich shop down the street from the store isn't going to give a kid, you know, a free meal day after day after day if mom or dad, you know, haven't given the child money to pay for it. I don't think the school is any different at all. I think you build in some period of grace, but after after the kid is 5 or 10 or $15 in the hole, then it becomes mom or dad's problem. And I guess I'm not too sympathetic that the kid might be a little unhappy that he's getting the cheese sandwich. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, at the risk of being labeled as cruel, heartless, conservative, I just think at some point in time, it is a matter of personal responsibility. And I don't think the taxpayers can continue to pick up the cost for providing hot lunches for kids if, after reasonable notification, mom and dad still continue not to put money in the account. My guess is, in the majority of cases where you cut off the lunch, that is the motivating factor to get mom and dad off their butts to get them to put money in the account. Michael in Janesville. Michael, you're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. What do you think? I can't agree with you more. You you can't put it on the school district. I mean, we we would keep wanting to put more and more on these school districts and have the schools do this and schools do that, where it just point blank, it comes down to the parents' responsibilities and as parents' priorities. If a parent's not going to turn around and pay their school bill, their lunch bill, yeah. How can you keep giving that kid a hot lunch? It's you're getting a sandwich, right? I mean, so right. you're getting a cold sandwich. I mean, well, but that's lunch shaming, Michael. The other kids are well, going to say, "Hey, you didn't get a you, you know you didn't get the hot lunch. You must not have money in your account." To which, but, to, to know, which, so that's when the that's thing. when the kids go home and say, "Mom, this was terrible. They gave me a cheese sandwich. For goodness sakes, what's going on? Put money in my account." <laughs> well, exactly. And it's like I told you, a screener. You know, it's like 
you're never going to stop this stuff from kids getting picked on. It happened to you in school. Sure. It happened to me. It's, it's always going to happen. It's kids. That's what kids do. I mean, it's this whole thing of feelings and everything that we're on this pickup nowadays. You, you just, you got to get over it. And it's, it's well, part well, of right. life. Well, I mean, thank, again, I mean, the, the example I give is why. Okay, I mean, I, I appreciate that, that schools are there to educate and stuff, but again, my example was, you, you let, let's say there's a, I, I'm a big fan of cousin subs. Let's say there's a cousin sub next door to, you know, the school, and the kid, you know, typically, you know, goes there for lunch every day. Well, if, if he doesn't have money or she doesn't have money or mom and dad don't give him money, you know, you're going to walk in, you're going to order your cousin's sandwich, they're not going to give it to you, you know, maybe, they're just not going to give it to you if you don't have money to pay for it. Why Why are the schools different in that regard? Now, look, I think that you have to have a policy that maybe lets the kid go a little bit into the hole. Um, but then after you've sent the note home, after you've made the call, at some point in time, it to me, that's what motivates mom and dad who've got, I appreciate, they've got lots of different priorities and things like that. But that's what motivates mom and dad to get off their butt and put money in the account. In some respects, it's no different like on a field trip. Right. If you send home, okay, there are permission slips. You got to fill out the permission slips, and it's going to cost you know fifty dollars or whatever to go on the field trip to the symphony or whatever. Okay, that's fine. If you don't fill out the um, if you don't fill out the the form and send it back, the child's not going to go, and they're going to. And I say child again. These policies, I I think. I would be inclined maybe to cut a little more slack to the grade school kids whose mom and dad are, are the deadbeats as opposed to, like, the high school kid. I mean, really, I mean, you know, if you've got some 16- or 17-year-old, I think at that point in time, all right, maybe they can, like, make their own cheese sandwich. So I'd be inclined to cut a little more slack to the younger kids. But still, this is a parental thing. We continue the conversation next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 944. It's 948, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Brewers look to add to their baseball best 43 home runs this evening in St. Louis as they kick off a seven-game road trip. Bob Euchre and Jeff Levering are live from Bush Stadium beginning at 640 this evening. That is sponsored by your Milwaukee Honda dealers. Big story in the New York Times. By July 1st, every state is going to be required to submit to the Department of Agriculture a, a, a plan saying how they deal with kids who have the ability, whose parents have the ability to pay, but are behind in their lunch accounts. Um, schools are different. Some will continue to give you hot lunches and let you run up the tab. Others, 45%, say what we'll do is we'll give you hot lunches. We'll, we won't give you hot lunches, but we'll give you a cheese sandwich until mom and dad pays, or peanut butter and jelly or something like that. 3% give nothing at all. I, I think as, as a practical matter, I think the only way you can many times motivate mom and dad to pay is by, again, saying, okay, you're going to get the cheese sandwich. And we're not talking about people who don't have the ability to pay. We are talking about people who, again, for whatever reason, have made the decision to choose not to pay. Maybe they're busy. they got all sorts of things going on. I think you give them reasonable notice. And then after that, I don't think the school, I don't think the school should be in a position of being a collection agency for overdue lunch accounts. Brent in Oshkosh. Brent, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. Um, what I was thinking is that parents should have to put a card on file with the school when they uh, register. That way, 
you know, they can just... Like a credit card, you mean? These, Yes, exactly. So then that way they can draw it, and it never uh, gets to the point of them being delinquent or getting in the uh, cheese sandwich situation. What? And then for field trips and everything else, you know, that would make it that much easier, too. What about the parents who say, well, we don't have credit cards or, or whatever? So the bottom line is you wouldn't let them go in the hole at all, essentially. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so that would just like an auto pay, like, you know... All our bills and stuff, these you know, are these days. Yeah. Now, I, again, that that would solve the problem. But I mean, I could just imagine there's all sorts of back. What about the parents who don't have credit cards or, or things like like that? I mean, obviously, that would be a solution. I just don't know how practical a solution that that would be. Uh, let's talk to Katie in Lannan. Katie, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. Hi. I am calling on the perspective of from a parent whose child just experienced this. It happened to us last week, okay. right off of spring break. Um, my children take hot lunch maybe once a month, if that. I only put money in their account as needed. I had put money in the account that morning, and it didn't post by lunchtime. Mm-hmm. So at lunchtime, my son was standing in line. He's 13, seventh grade. And they took his lunch away from him, threw it away, and said, oh, wow, basically. They did not offer him so much as a milk, nothing. He had $2 in his account. So it was not bare. It was not negative. It has never been negative. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, and, yeah, first of all, I, I've always, I don't understand the throwing the food. To me, that's the incredible waste. It seems to me you either... You, you, you either don't give you identify yeah, it so you don't give the kid the food way. right yeah i mean to, to, so to take the tray away and throw away the food seems to me and it just to be an incredible waste of food if you can't pay for it well then you give them the cheese sandwich or, or whatever i mean throwing it away i agree makes no sense to me at all the way that it was handled and the way that people are minimizing the situation dead parents whatever don't have a credit card this don't have a credit card that yes i agree the schools are willing to work with you i get that part but the way that it's being handled and the way that people are shaming the parents and even shaming the students for not being able to stand up for themselves, my son is 13. He is the most respectful, quiet kid that you've ever met. Okay, but in your case, Katie, it, it, it was a one-off type of thing, and it sounds like the, the school district made it. So, because let me tell you this. I, I put this on social media. I am making this my mission to make sure that no child has to experience the humiliation that my son did. Middle school is hard enough. Well, let's okay, no, let me stop you there. Okay, so let, let's right. not take your one-off thing. Let's not take your no, situation. What, what about, okay, what so you, you think if you if you made the decision that you weren't going to put money in your kid's account for a week or two weeks, you think the school should continue to have to give him the hot lunch? I think there needs to be a case-by-case situation. I don't think that it can be a blanketed district policy. Why not? There's also been issues, because there's also been issues where at our school, by the time the 8th graders, they have a 6th grade lunch, a 7th grade lunch, an 8th grade lunch. By the time the 8th graders get there, there's no more food for them. Okay, but that's that's not, I I get it, and that's an issue with uh, your particular school and and how they're running the lunch program, But and and that may or may not be legitimate, but I'm talking about the bigger picture. I mean, I I don't understand case by case. In, In your situation, it sounds like they screwed up, there was money in the kid's account, that I get, I understand why you're upset, but the broader picture for the parents who knowingly, who have the money, but just keep sending their kids to school day after day, week after week, without money in their account, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't understand why we would think that the if, taxpayers if should keep giving them lunch. a situation where the parents are defiantly doing that, then maybe we need to discover that. But you're also looking at a situation where you don't know if that's the case. 
I have four children, one of which is cognitively disabled and autistic, and one which has severe medical needs. There is no extra money to sit in an account. I put the account in as needed because there is no extra money. We live paycheck to paycheck. We bust our asses, and middle America get screwed in the end. Well, so okay. To know uh, that well, the look, parents I, uh, have that extra money. Well, because okay. Well, then you call. All right. Now, see, Katie. I, here's the thing. I mean, I understand you've got your personal situation. You're unhappy about this, and I, I'm not going to. I don't know the particulars about the school thing, but but the the bigger picture is. And it sounds to me like you send your kids to school with a lunch or, or whatever. The, the bigger picture is, the, if if financially, I mean, if financially you qualify for the the free lunches or the reduced lunches, this doesn't happen. But that that's not the situation with the vast majority of the these cases, and it's not necessarily just a one-off thing. That's why I said I think the schools should develop some sort of reasonable policy where there is a bit of a grace period. I if. I wouldn't deny the kid, if I were the king, I wouldn't deny the kid a lunch for the first day or two. But that's not where the problems are coming in. The problems are coming in. It's not the the one lunch here or there. It's the systematically, here, you know, the kid's, Mom and dad aren't putting money into the account. Mom and dad don't qualify for the free lunches. And the truth is, the majority of the time, it's because mom and dad are just busy. They blow it off because it's not a priority sort of thing. I don't think the taxpayer should be responsible for trying to pick up the the cost of of that. For the one-off type of thing, I'd give them the hot lunch because you've got a track history of putting the money into the account, all right? And I also don't understand why you give them the food, then take it away and just throw it out. To me, that doesn't make any sense. That is just nothing but a pure waste of food. But but if you look at the places that do this, I think what you will find is in the vast majority of cases, as soon as mom and dad realize that there's not going to continue to be a free lunch, what they do is they put the money in the account and it solves the problem. 1007, this is Jeff Wagner. Glad to have you with us. Let me give you some good news. Um, over the last month or so, what, one of the issues that has, has really flared up has been the, the anti-U.S. dairy policies implemented by, by Canada. I think people are familiar with the story now. You have several dairies, particularly some smaller dairies in New York and in Wisconsin, and they, they have Part of their production is in this special type of, of milk, this ultra-filtered milk, that they then sell to a, a manufacturer. They sell to a dairy, and then what happens is the, the dairy then takes this and they sell it to Canada, and they use it in Canada to make uh, cheese and things like that. Well, um, this has been the way things have operated for years and years. What Canada decided to do starting late last year is they decided, hey, we want to screw over the U.S. dairy farms. So what we're going to do is we're going to create economic disincentives for the Canadian processors, the ones who use this stuff to make cheese, we're going to, through the use of tariffs and some other things, we're going to make it economically undesirable for the Canadian processors to use the, the American, the, the milk that's coming in, the, the unfiltered stuff that's coming in from, from America. So what's happened is, as a result of these policies implemented by the Canadian government, all right, the, the different cheesemakers, for example, in Canada, have stopped buying 
the stuff that's coming out of, for example, Wisconsin. It's not because the stuff is no good. It's simply because the Canadian government has implemented policies that make it cost more to bring the stuff in from Wisconsin than to, again, patronize the local dairy farmers in Canada. So as a result of this restrictive anti American dairy actions, you have a number of farms in New York State and in Wisconsin where um, the, the question would be, you know, what are they going to do? And this has gotten a ton of attention. The good news, and the Journal Sentinel is reporting this now, that the vast majority of of the farms, um, and let's see, they had 58 that were, were dropped by this grassland dairy products of Greenwood because, again, grassland dairy they couldn't they were selling all this stuff to canada and because canada changed its trade policies there there was no longer a market for this stuff at least as of now the reports are in the journal sentinel that almost all of those dairy farms almost all have been able to at least in the short term find alternative sources to sell their their products to um not all of them but the vast majority of them have. Now, this doesn't solve the overall problem. And, of course, President Trump has responded to what Canada did to the dairies by saying, okay, here's what I'm going to do. If Canada is going to play this way, I'm going to put a 20% tariff on lumber, which is one of Canada's big exports to the U.S. I'm going to put a 20% uh, tariff on, on lumber if this is how they want to play the game. Now, you can argue whether that's in the long run good or not because it's at least short term until U.S. builders or the people that use the Canadian lumber find alternative sources, it's going to drive up the cost because they're going to have to pay the tariff. But but this is kind of the trade war which is operating. But this is at least short term for people who were concerned about the dairies and things like that. It, it now appears that they have found the vast majority of the farms have found um, alternative markets. All right. Interesting story in the front page of of USA Today. I I was trying to think back. I've really, I haven't had that many different jobs over the course of my lifetime. I understand that there's some people who change jobs a a lot. Um, Went to work for the U.S. Attorney's Office out of law school, and I I was out of law school, so I, I didn't have a salary history, really. I mean, plus, when you went to work for the government, it was all pretty much slotted in as to how much money you were going to get starting off. Um... When I left the U.S. Attorney's Office and went to work for a private law firm, they didn't ask me my salary history. They asked me, okay, how, how much money would, would you need? And then the same thing was true when I, when I came here at TMJ. I, I was never asked my salary history. I was told, okay, this is how much we can pay you. Are you interested in, in the job? So I've never been asked my salary history. I also understand that for a lot of jobs, the, the jobs, what they pay, especially for like starting jobs, they pay what they they pay. You know, it's okay. You're you're going to work at uh, Hondo's Sporting Goods store. It's the job pays ten dollars an hour to start. Okay, we're gonna. That's so. A lot of them, there, there's no negotiation. For other jobs, though, and people applying for them, there is a degree of of negotiation. The employer obviously wants to get the best employees they can, but they want to they want the least cost. The employee obviously wants the most money they can get for doing that particular job. Now, I bring this up because 
there are a handful of states that have passed laws. Remember, we've talked about the whole controversy involving ban the box. The box is the question on employment applications. It asks if you have ever been convicted of a crime. And in many communities, um, in many states and localities, particularly in government work, there's now the ban the box thing. And the argument is, even though employers can run background checks, if you check that you've been convicted of a crime, you're never even going to get an interview. So the idea is um, you don't let employers find out about that till later in the hiring process. So then maybe when they do find out that you've been convicted of a crime, you at least get an interview and you can explain why you'd still be a good employee. I'm... I'm not sure that really makes a lot of sense, but that's the hip and trendy thing right now, the ban the box movement. A couple states have also now started banning what they call the salary question. They make it illegal. They make it illegal for businesses to ask about a potential employee's salary history. Now, you might say, why would that be illegal? Well, the argument is we have this glass ceiling, particularly for women, and women tend to be paid less than men for similar type of jobs. And if, let's say, you want to hire somebody and you you don't have a set salary, but you have a range, maybe the job, you know, you could pay 45000 but you'd like to pay 40000 If you're the employer and you ask about the person's salary history and you find, hey, they're making thirty five grand, well, then you can offer them forty, and you could be, you know, just thrilled because they'll jump at it because you know it's still going to be a raise. Whereas maybe if you didn't know how much money they made, you could, you know, they could be able to talk you into paying 43, 44, 45 grand. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do we need government regulation telling employers that they are not allowed to inquire about people's salary history during the job interview process? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, maybe this is going to be one that you disagree with me on, but I, I think an employer can ask that question. And I think, I guess, an employee, a potential employee, has then every right to say, no, I'm not going to tell you. Now, that might result in you not getting hired, but that's the game you play. But I don't think there's any reason why an employer shouldn't be able to ask you how much money you have made at previous jobs. And you can decide, to me, that's part of the negotiating strategy, and then you can decide if you want to share that information or not. Should government tell employers they can't ask about salary history? 414-799-1620 is the number we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1016. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, coming up in less than 10 minutes. Hey ho, does David Clark have to go? The mystery surrounding the disappearance of Alexis Patterson continues 15 years later. What happened to the seven year old girl who left for school one morning and was never heard from again? Well, 15 years ago. Here exclusively from one of the men named as a suspect during Wisconsin's afternoon news at 420 today. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Here exclusively from one of the men named as a suspect during the Wisconsin's Afternoon News Show 420 today. Be sure to tune in. Okay, right now, there's a, and there's a big story on the front page of USA Today today about this. A number of states, or at least a handful of states, are trying to pass laws which would say to employers, 
when you're considering hiring somebody, you are not allowed to ask about their salary history. Now, I understand there's a lot of jobs where the salary is just set. You know, when they put in the advertisement, they say, okay, we're hiring X persons. You know, starting salary is is whatever. There's a lot of employers that that is uh, likely to. But there are other employers um, where it is a negotiating – salary is a negotiating factor. And I believe that an employer should have – the government shouldn't be telling an employer that you can't ask this information. Last time I checked, the amount of money you made was not some sort of protected class. I think an employer has the right to ask for that information. Now, if you don't want to share it, you want to tell them how much you made, you have the right to say, no, I'm I'm not going to disclose this. I'm not going to tell you how much money I've made. And then the employer can decide ultimately whether they want to make you a job offer or, or not. Yes, that might cost you the job, but there's all sorts of things during a negotiation that you know might cost you the job. Or the employer you know, might come back and say, okay, how much money do you need to take this job? And you can tell them. But uh, do I understand why a lot of employers might, might not even care about this? Yes. But should the government really be telling employers you can't ask for somebody's salary history? And to me, that's a clear government overreach. The only justification that's really out there is, well, okay, this might allow them to pay less than women because women historically have made less than men, so you can still continue to perpetuate the glass ceiling by offering a woman a raise but still not as much as you pay the guy. Well, all right, if you are discriminating against people and the salaries based on their gender or something, this is not going to change that dynamic. There's other ways you do it. Uh, big push from some states, again, in the interest of political correctness and gender equality. I think it is misplaced in the extreme. Coming up next, hey-ho, does David Clark need to go? Stick around. It's 1022. It's 1023, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, now officially in office for 100 days. How would you grade the Trump presidency so far? Scafidi and Billstat, they take your calls today at 135. Hey, here's an interesting thing tomorrow. The um, the Writers Guild um, out in Hollywood, the, the people who write the, the TV shows and things like that, they're uh, they're talking about going out on strike. Um, it's And... The last time they did this was 10 years ago, and you saw what happened is the network switched to, like, reality TV and all. It's – I don't know. I've I've been reading a little bit about this. The the Writers Guild has one of the real – the real issue is they've got – and these are are screenwriters, you know, who who generally work. They belong to the union, but they they, they generally – they bounce around, you know, and you might be, you know, you write scripts or something and you're working on a TV show and then you're working on another TV show. Um, the, the, the insurance plan that they have is, is the Cadillac of insurance plans. It, it's just, and it is extremely expensive. And as we've been seeing with healthcare costs, the studios are saying, hey, this is costing us too much. And, you know, we, we, we've had this and it's always been this Cadillac type of thing, but we can't afford to keep paying this dough out. And, of course, the writers are saying, no, 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 we, we need this, we need this, we need this. Um, and they're, they're still negotiating. But uh, right now the strike deadline is set for Tuesday. The, the smart money says that the Hollywood writer is going to walk. Now, short term, it doesn't affect, I think, a lot of TV programming because, um, 
you, you shoot these shows months ahead of time. So, and most of the the shows are finished filming for the season. But it certainly, if it lasts very long, could affect like network premieres in the fall and things like that. And it might affect some of the cable shows that are constantly like in production and rolling out things. But that's a story to watch because um, the the headline that they're saying out of Hollywood is it it could very well be ugly. All right, today is is May Day. And there will be a number of protests across the country, typically by the the usual suspects. In in Milwaukee, you've got the Voces de la Frontera. This is the um, illegal alien advocacy group that won't really come out and say it. But but they're, I believe they want open borders. They, They don't believe in general that we should be tough on people coming into this country illegally. And they certainly don't think that people should, once they're here illegally, be sent back. And so that's... That's it, and they they always they're the ones that stage these things about how you know we need to see the value of immigrants and all that type of stuff. And what what I really think is their agenda, like I say, is open borders, which to me is just absolutely absurd. So anyhow, they're going to be out there, and you'll see all the the marches and things on on TV this evening for sure. One of the one of the nemeses of this group, Voces de la Frontera, has of course been Sheriff David Clark. Now, David Clark has always been a controversial figure. Now he is even more controversial than ever. You've got the inquest that's going on at the death at, that happened at the jail. And even though, I mean, David Sheriff Clark hasn't testified, and nobody, I think, is alleging that David Clark was involved in making the decisions that led to the inmate to die after nine days, it's one of the examples that's being thrown around as uh, an out-of-control sheriff. You have the Voces de La Frontera people who are upset with Clark because, contrary to the county executive, contrary to a resolution passed by the county board, Clark has made it very, very clear that he intends to fully and completely cooperate with the federal government when it comes to dealing with um, immigration and customs sort of, of matters. And, he, you know, he's the sheriff. And right now, if the sheriff decides, hey, all this talk about being a sanctuary city, whatever that means, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to follow along with this. I'm going to do what I think is right. and I think I'm going to do what I think the law requires. There's really not a lot that the county board or the county executive can do. And Clark has, I think, made that clear. So that has him in the crosshairs of the, this Voces de la Frontera group. Plus, You've got all the issues that surround David Clark, whether it's confrontations with people on airplanes or the allegations that he's kind of an absentee sheriff now, all those different types of, of issues. Well, this this is now back. This Voces de la Frontera group on, I think it was Friday, what they did is they, they went uh, again to the governor. And legislators have done this before, and it's gone nowhere. But uh, the group delivered petitions with 10,000 signatures I'm just kind of curious as to how many of those 10,000 signatures might have been from people who can't legally vote, but I just throw that out there. Anyhow, the petitions urged Governor Walker to remove David Clark from office. And again, the the group, there's all sorts of different issues, including, you know, his handling of the jail. Now, the way the law reads is that a, a governor of a state has the authority to remove elected county officials for specific reasons. The statutes also provide the governor with the authority to remove a county official um, 
he can remove a district attorney, a sheriff, a coroner, or a register of deeds for cause. Cause means inefficiency, neglect of duty, official misconduct, or malfeasance in office. The most recent time that this has been was explored when you had the district attorney um, in one of the northeastern counties who was accused of sexting the victim in one of the cases, and he was under criminal investigation. And apparently then Governor Doyle was exploring removing that district attorney from office. It became moot when the district attorney stepped down. Well, I don't think, I mean, David Clark, I, I, I think I would be safe in saying that I don't know if David Clark's going to step down to take some other job or something. There's rumors out there. But David Clark is not going to step down in the face of a petition to the governor saying that he should. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Let's tee this up. Should the governor remove David Clark from office? He theoretically has the statutory power to do so. When we come back, I'll tell you where I come down on this, but I'd like to hear what you think as well. It's 1034, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. What is it that 10% of Americans claim to do in airports that might shock you? Huh. John McCure has the surprising story at 540 today during the Wisconsin's Afternoon News Show. I don't know what it is. And I'm probably, I think maybe I'm glad to glad that I'm, I'm not in the airport like I was on uh, the, the other day. It sounds like one of those things maybe you don't want to know necessarily. Uh, let's see. Let's go to our WTMJ text line. Number of people want to weigh in on the whole question of David Clark. Here, here's the deal: there's a statute in Wisconsin that gives the governor the authority to remove certain officials, including county sheriffs, for cause. Generally speaking, that's been interpreted to be if somebody is convicted of of a crime. Um, but it, it is broader than that. It's not just malfeasance. It also includes things like. Um, inefficiency, neglect of duty, official misconduct, or, or malfeasance. And so you've got the pro, the, the immigrant, the illegal immigrant group in town, the, the Voces de la Frontera, they are calling, they've been after Clark for a long time. They don't like Clark because he says he will cooperate with law enforcement when it comes to enforcing federal laws with regard to immigration. So they've been out to get him for a while. They are now calling on uh, the governor to remove him. They're using the story about what's going on in the jail as one of the many examples. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, let's see. Although I do not, this is Chris, although I not do not agree, although I did agree with Clark on most issues, it seemed like most of the recent decisions were made for his best interest. The idea of being the sheriff became less of a priority. Maybe if that were not the case, this wouldn't have happened. Also, what's with the cowboy hat? Um, let's see. Uh, Nathan text, if he didn't do it with John Chisholm, he won't do it with Clark. Let the voters decide. Yes. See, here's... Here's where I come down on this. First of all, I, I don't I don't think Scott Walker or Jim Doyle or any other governor should be in the business of removing independently elected officials simply because they disagree with the way they are doing their job. I think that is a matter for the voters. 
if you have someone who has been charged with a crime, if you have a district attorney who is up on charges that might result in them losing their law license, all right, that I understand that, and that is a factor that you might want to consider. But generally, the, the idea, neglect of duty. Okay, if you had somebody who just simply decided they were heading down to Aruba and they were going to stay there for a year and a half, um, all right, maybe in that case, yes. But this idea that, here, we want to intervene and we want you to toss out elected people absent absent criminal charges, I think is ridiculous. Here is my message to Votos de la Frontera, who supposedly collected 10,000 signatures. God knows where they came from. But if you think you have this groundswell of support to have de- among the voters in Milwaukee County – in order to have him tossed out of office. God bless you. Here's what you do. We have this thing in Wisconsin called recall elections, and those of you on the left know how these work, and you know how to run them. I mean, we just went through this a few years ago, and I'm not advocating for the recall of David Clark, but if you think you've got the horses, if you think that Clark has done such a terrible job, if you think that he has lost the trust of the public, and I take no position on that overall question. If you believe that he is guilty of neglect of duty or malfeasance or misfeasance in office or whatever, fine. Instead of sending petitions to the governor, go get people who are eligible to vote, who are legally in this country, who are residents of Milwaukee County, and start a recall on Clark. It's that simple. If you don't want to wait the, what, he's up for election a year and a half from now if he runs for re-election, and I think that's a very much of an open question. But if you want him out, there, there is a mechanism for you to do that. You don't need the governor to get involved. Otherwise, it's just sort of political posturing. And, of course, that's what Votes de La Frontera does a lot. Let's start with Jerry and Mequon. Jerry, you're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am well, thank you. What do you think? Uh, if you don't want to, go through the, the legal process, have a special election. But I'll be, I'll be honest with you, I live in Ozaki County, and so I might be talking, you know, incorrectly because I can't vote for him. Right. If I could vote for him, I would vote for him. And here's why. Not because I wear a cowboy hat. That's nothing but a hat. When people wear a brewer's hat, are they brewers? I don't think so. I, Here's my point. The guy has good, solid family principles. He's a law-abiding... Mm-hmm. Uh, what, well, well, he's a law-and-order guy. There's no question about it. He's a law-and-order guy. In, in a common sense, no nonsense. He's. I don't believe there's a, a political motivation other than he enjoyed uh, the fact that uh, Fox uh, picked up on anybody in the country, especially an African-American... Mm-hmm. and somebody who is in law enforcement. Uh, and, of course, he got the favor of, of Donald Trump, yep. and so be it. He earned that part of it. Is it taken away from what he's supposed to do? And is he doing something else wrong than uh, run a special election? Right. Do do a recall, right? I mean, we, we saw that after Act 10. My gosh, there were recall petitions. All this stuff was circulating. And to me, I, again, that's what, what this tells me is that... Candidly, that there's not there is not as much anti-Clark sentiment in Milwaukee County as some people would have you believe. 
because if there really was this groundswell of support to get him out, I have no doubt that this this would be exactly what was happening. Let's organize the recall. Let's go after it. The fact that there's a decision being made not to do that tells me that there's polling out there or something else out there that suggests that Clark is more popular, say, than maybe the folks at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel who have their own vendetta against him or some of these lefty groups that don't like him are are telling. Because if this was such an open and shut thing, again, we we know how to do recalls around here. If there was this general sense, I mean, my goodness, the allegations that are being made against Clark are – much more serious than the allegations for a recall that were made against Scott Walker. That was just, hey, you've got some public employees who are upset that they're going to lose some collective bargaining rights and they're going to have to contribute more to their pensions and their health care. That was enough to start the whole controversy over Act 10. Well, the stuff with Clark, oh, you've got people dying in the jail, he's doing this horrible job, all that stuff. Well, okay, if you've got the horses, don't expect the governor to do your dirty work. Just come on out and you know start the recall and then let's get this resolved one way or the other or just shut the heck up. At least when it comes to the removal of Clark, you can certainly criticize Clark for stuff he does or he doesn't do. But shut the heck up when it comes to tossing him out of office. Either start the recall, put up or shut up, or sit back and you know wait till the next election, which is what eighteen months or now from now. Dave on the South Side, Dave, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, uh, I disagree with you, Jeff. I think he should be removed. If we compare like Tom Barrett, if he was out there for Hillary Clinton for a year uh, campaigning and not doing his job, would you say the same thing, Jeff? Yeah, I, 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 right. I mean, I yeah. doubt it. I doubt no, it. No, I, I would. I mean, the fact that these, these politicians, okay, Tom, look, here, let's take that example. If Hillary Clinton had asked Tom Barrett to travel around the country and be a surrogate for her, Barrett would have said yes. I mean, he, he that's, I mean, the idea that you're going to remove politicians because they are campaigning for other politicians. My God, you wouldn't have anybody in jobs anymore, Dave. If he if he's paid for the job for the whole year, I'm sure he doesn't have that much vacation to, to no. be away from his Well, job, but he right? probably doesn't. I don't, I, he's an elected official. He probably doesn't get, I, I doubt that he gets X amount of vacation. I mean, he's just, he gets to do, I think, what he, I mean, Dave, I, look, here, here, here's the bottom line. I understand why people would be unhappy with Clark. I, I get it. I understand. He's a lightning rod. So I, I understand. I understand that. But my message is don't go whining to the governor. I mean, you. I don't care whether it's a Republican governor or whether it's a Democratic governor. I mean, I don't want I don't want these governors just running around willy nilly saying, hey, I don't think you're spending enough time on your job. I think you were gone too much, you know, doing whatever. Or, you know, I don't. I don't like, you know, you're spending too much money in your budget or you're not spending enough money. I mean, we we elect these different offices for a reason. Now, obviously, if you have an office holder that commits a crime or something like that, I get it. This is a procedure that you could force the person out. So I'm not saying that you can never use this procedure. I am just saying because you don't like somebody's politics, because you don't like the fact that they're campaigning for Donald Trump too much, because you don't like the fact that they're you know out of state or they're spending too much time on Fox News or whatever, that is a legitimate objection. But it's not a basis, in my opinion, to be removed from office. If If you think it's going to be a removal in office, God bless you. Start the recall and let the voters decide. But like I say, the fact that they're choosing not to start a recall effort against David Clark tells me that 
in the minds of at least a lot of people that know, Clark is probably a lot more popular than you would think, and maybe there's not the groundswell of support to remove him in a recall. Now, whether he can win another Democratic primary is, of course, another story, but I don't think he's going to be running another Democratic primary anyways. In other words, the efforts to ask the governor to remove Clark, nope. It's a political thing. Start a recall if you want him out. 1045, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Coming up next, no more free rides. Good. Stick around. Ten forty nine, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. I love that Jackson Brown tune running on empty. Um, Fifteen years ago, seven year old Alexis Patterson disappeared during her walk to school. Was never heard from again. On the anniversary of this mystery, John McCure speaks with those closest to the case, family, friends, law enforcement, even the man many believe is the leading suspect. Don't miss this special edition of Wisconsin's Afternoon News. It is this Wednesday from three until six. It is must listen to radio. I haven't heard the whole thing, but I, I know some of the interviews John's done in connection with this. You. You do not want to miss it. One final thought on the remove David Clark from office, Governor Walker idea. And, and actually, it's a point kind of alluded to by one of our listeners, um, Sam, who writes on the text line. David Clark is the only level headed person running the city in some form. People better be real careful with this issue. You know, one of our callers said that, well, you know, he, he's been traveling around. He's been gone. You know, he's been campaigning for Donald Trump and he's on Fox News and you know he's not doing his job. All right. Remember, let's just think about this. Remember, and and I don't know how the statute applies to mayors, for example, but okay, Milwaukee Mayor Tom Bear um, ran for for governor. And trust me, when when you're running for statewide office, it's essentially a full time job. I mean, you're you're. You, you are out there. That is your principal priority. Now, now Barrett did it twice, unsuccessfully, at, while he was the mayor of the city of Milwaukee. He did it once during the recall, and before that, he did it when he was challenging Walker the, the first time. Now, I don't remember people coming up and saying, well, he, he's an absentee mayor. You know, he's spending all this time campaigning. Look, he's He's traveling all over the state. He's doing these speeches. No, nobody said that because he was an elected official. He gets to do that. He gets to decide how he wants to do his job. And if the voters of the city of Milwaukee decide that he's an absentee guy who wasn't doing his job or whatever, they have the opportunity to vote him out. Now, the voters in Milwaukee decided, no, that they're they're going to reelect him. They've reelected him, I think, what, twice since since then. But that's the call the voters end up getting to make. And this idea that here we're going to we're going to have the governor come in simply because we don't like the way somebody who's running the their office. That's a very, very dangerous precedent. Um, and I don't think you should do it. I don't think you should do it candidly, absent a criminal charge or something really, really, really egregious. And showing up on Fox News or campaigning for Donald Trump, that's not, in my opinion, really egregious. All right. Finally, Milwaukee County in one teeny, 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 tiny area is coming to its senses. A few years back, then County Board Chairwoman Marina Dmitrievic, in what was one of the most flagrant and worst examples of irresponsible political pandering that I have seen in a long time, decided to push through with help from a bunch of the other Clown Car Act members of the County Board, 
pass through the, this go pass notion. Now, go pass has to do with the Milwaukee County bus system. Before go passes, people, senior citizens, were eligible for discounted bus rides. You know, your, your bus ride would cost a buck, all right? Um, and then there was also um, there was also a special provision for people who were disabled. You could get reduced fares or no fares at all, all right? That was it. In what was pandering to a certain segment of the voters, Dmitry Avik and a majority of the county board over the, actually a super majority, over the objections of County Executive Chris Abley, created this thing called GoPass, which would allow not discounted rides, but free rides for any county resident who is disabled and any county resident who is over the age of 65. Right, So if you hit 65, you got free bus rides. It doesn't matter whether you've got $5 million in your IRA. doesn't matter whether you can't afford it. It was just that you got free bus rides because Dmitry Avik and some of the crew, I think, thought, hey, this will make it more likely that senior citizens are going to want to vote for us. Both ably and you know, a lot of the budget analysts said, wait a second, you've got to realize there's a lot of senior citizens that ride these buses, and a good portion of them can afford at least the discounted fare. If we start giving this away for free, it's going to cost us a ton of money. So didn't matter. They went ahead and they did it. And that is precisely what happened. Bus ridership, yes, it went up because more people said, hey, I, I can ride the bus for free. But the problem is it, it increased the bus companies losing money because you had people who otherwise were able to pay. Now they weren't paying, plus more people were riding the bus, so you had those extra costs that came with that as well. Um, the estimate is that unless you did something, um, the, the bus company would lose $4 million this year, $4 million. And this is a bus company that, that's that's – I mean, being choked because it doesn't have enough revenue to begin with. So here's the deal. Um, the free fare go-pass rides on the buses are going to end next month. This means that more than 40% of users will lose their eligibility. Um, so what it's going to do is, again, if you qualify, you're still going to be, if you're 65 or older, for example, you're still going to be eligible for the reduced bus fares like the dollar, but there's new financial eligibility guidelines. County residents 65 and older must be receiving Medicaid or state food share benefits to be eligible for the program. So in other words, there, there's some form of, of, again, means testing. So if you can afford the dollar bus ride, you, you pay the dollar bus ride. Residents under the age of 65 must receive Social Security income either through SSI or SSDI or have a veteran's disability designation and receive Medicaid or food share benefits. So, again, if you're over 65 and you qualify through one of these low-income federal programs, you can still get the free pass. But if you're one of the, what do they say, 60% of the people who don't fit into those categories, you pay the dollar which is not an unreasonable position to take. This was an economically, it wasn't along the lines of the um, pension scandal, but the same people who gave you the pension scandal gave you this go-pass idea, which anybody who had any understanding of economics knew in the beginning was going to be a disaster, and surprise follows surprise, it turned into a disaster. If it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. 
But, of course, you can't tell that to members of the Milwaukee County Board. At least, finally, the county appears to be getting it right. 1056, Jeff Wagner, 620, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 620, WTMJ. So, Jane, were you all bummed out that the Fry Festival, were, were you planning to, to catch Fry Festival next year? Dude. <laughs> so bummed. <laughs> and, and who could have seen this coming? For people who weren't familiar with this, Fry Festival, organized by this rapper, um, advertised by, like, supermodels. It was scheduled to be on this island in the Bahamas, once yes. owned by drug kingpin Pablo Escobar. Ah. So, and it was Blink-182 was going to play. They were going to have these rap things. And the, the way it was billed is, come fly to this island in the Bahamas and in exchange for packages really well they start around 1200 but but most of them you know over $100,000 in exchange for giving us thousands of thousands of dollars you will have this great experience from Thursday till Sunday all these super bands and you're going to be staying in these first class accommodations and there's going to be all these opportunities to take selfies with supermodels and stuff like that didn't quite work out that way, did it? No, it did not. So the the I was I, I mean I, when I was in Las Vegas, I saw this story. It's the front page of the New York Times. So all these people who've been promised luxury accommodations and stuff, who have paid thousands and thousands of dollars up front, by the way, they they fly and it's it's not easy to get here. You got to get to Miami, which isn't that easy to begin with, and then you got to take like a plane from Miami to the Bahamas. So then so you land in this island, and they're expecting luxury hotels and accommodations, and they get there. And they say, well, um, okay, we know we showed you this picture that you were supposed to have this suite with, like, three bedrooms and stuff. Well, we, we don't have that. What we have is a bunch of tents that are over there. And you better get one quick because we don't know how many people are coming. And, oh, by the way, this big storm washed through the night before, and so all the bedding and everything is is wet. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and it got worse from there. It got worse from there. And you have to love that the organizers say they didn't realize it was this complicated. It was unforeseeable, right? Unforeseeable circumstances. And, of course, now, these <laughs> I like the way the New York Times writes it. Um, guests that arrived on the island of Great Exuma for the inaugural weekend, um, instead of a luxury experience, they found something closer to Survivor. <laughs> it's just kind of like, okay, who's the last one on the island? But now... Uh, the the promised amenities replaced instead by dirt fields, soggy tents, and folding chairs. Oh, can you imagine? You're getting off the plane. You know, you're looking forward to this thing. You've shelled out twelve grand or whatever, and oh, there's some tents over there, but people are stealing stuff out of them, so you better get there quick. No showers. No, no showers. No bathrooms. No bathrooms. I, nope, I nope, saw no. things over the weekend that they were talking about feral dogs uh, and rats <laughs> and yes. Oh well, I guess it makes us appreciate Summerfest, you know. <laughs> it just kind of like there, you know. Who, no, who knew these things were so tough to pull? Who, right, and of course now the thing is, these people are just um, um, they're just out of luck because you know the organizers and any any money that there was is is long gone. So I mean, all these people that shelled out thousands and thousands of dollars and flew there, they're just. They're what's the word? They're screwed. <laughs> that's what they are. <laughs> you know, that's, they're just screwed. Anyway, so bottom line is, I guess if you're thinking about signing up for one of these festivals, you might just—I don't want to give it. Maybe want to give it a year or two just to. I, I will. You know, during Insight, when I was talking to Don Smiley and Bob Babish, I, I do. Of course, obviously, Summerfest doesn't compare to the, this freak show, but I mean, you do think about all the different festivals over the years that have come and gone and you know summerfest still here 
Um, Summerfest just just still here and, and growing and thriving and surviving and all those different things. And it just it, it that does not happen without a lot of good people, you know, working to have a first class facility. Okay, let us switch gears. This year, Donald Trump decided to stiff the White House Correspondents' Dinner. He, he decided to no-show it. The White House Correspondents' Dinner is this thing that they've done for years and years where the beautiful people in Washington, the media elite, surrounded in some cases by left-wing Hollywood celebrities, get together and, well, in, in the years when it was Barack Obama, it was sort of a love fest for Barack Obama. In years where it is a Republican president, they, it's a let's make fun of the Republican president. But the presidents have traditionally come. Well, Donald Trump this year decided he was not going to go, was not going to go. And the, the White House Correspondents' Dinner went on. There was also a, another one um, hosted, like kind of not the Correspondents' Dinner, that was hosted by a very vulgar comedian named Samantha Bee, who, who went off on attacking Trump. But Trump just essentially said, I'm not going to play. I'm, I'm just I'm not going to be the butt of these jokes. I'm not going to play. I have no use for you people. At least that's what he said. So instead of going to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, Trump goes to a, a rally in in Pennsylvania. And of course, Pennsylvania was um, you know one of the states where he had a lot of support. And and he went and he held this rally kind of in in farm country. And you know he was talking. For example, here's what he said. He said. Um, he accused the failing New York Times, CNN, MSNBC of incompetence and dishonesty. Um, their priorities are not my priorities and not your priorities. If the media's job is to be honest and tell the truth, the media deserves a very, very big, fat, failing grade. They're all dishonest people. And then, as happened during the um, campaign, there's these reporters that are covering it, and the crowd turns, and they start you know, chanting things like, CNN sucks, and re- you know, jeering reporters. So, I mean, President Trump goes back to one of his tried-and-true things. He, he's attacking the media, saying it's biased coverage, all those different things. He particularly you know, goes after the, the New York Times, but he's got his favorite whipping boys. There, there's no question that Donald Trump does some of this for effect and that playing the us-versus-them game I think he feels legitimately works for him. Now, it's an interesting kind of contrast, because at the same time he's playing the us-versus-them game, he's still going around giving all sorts of interviews to all these different media outlets that that are there. At the same time, he is bashing the quote-unquote mainstream media. For its part, whenever the New York Times or CNN or MSNBC or any of these mainstream media outlets get criticized, they, they get their backup. And their response is, there is nothing to see here. We are just outstanding journalists. We've got no agenda at all. How dare he accuse us of anything? All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I, I see the way local TV reporters cover things. And I will tell you, while I know lots of local TV reporters, and I know... On a, just on a personal level, I know what their politics are. I, I know, you know, how, I'm pretty sure how they vote in different elections and things like that. As a general rule, I will tell you that I, I don't see an agenda in local news. Local news is so consumed with let's try to get the story, let's try to get the story out there, what's the weather going to be like, that it's, it's just not a vehicle. When you're covering local news on a daily basis, even though I, I know – a lot of, like I say, the reporters and people like that. I, I, I know, you know, that they have 
their own opinions on things. But the nature of local news and the fast-breaking stuff and you're running around, you're doing things, I, I don't see – as a general rule, I don't see bias. It's just because the nature of it is, hey, what are we going to do today? How are we going to feed the beast? What are the next stories? The national media, I think, is different. There's no question about it. Where you have reporters that are assigned to cover particular beats, when they make the decisions as to what stories they want to cover or what they think is an issue, and you see this with newspapers as well, it's as much in the selection of what story gets covered and what story doesn't get covered as it is the way that it gets covered. And candidly, it's that selection process. If you decide, hey, I'm going to write a story on this, in many respects the story ends up writing itself. That, to me, was where the bias is. But President Trump continues to play the us-versus-them game against the, the mainstream media, accusing it of bias. The mainstream media, for its part, the New York Times, CNN, those folks, they're like, oh, this is just terrible. We, you know, we can't believe that, there, that anybody would dare to criticize us. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is there real bias in the media, or is this just a fiction cooked up by President Trump in order to, uh, once again, play the us-versus-them card. Is there fake news? Is there an agenda out there to undermine Trump, to undermine conservatives, or is this just paranoia? I have a theory. I will share it with you, and we will discuss. I am curious as to what you think. Is there real media bias, or is this just a political creation. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1117. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Eleven twenty, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. Now officially in office for one hundred days. How would you grade the Trump presidency so far? Scafidi and Billstead, take your calls today at one thirty-five. Let's start with Dave in Green Bay. Dave, you're first. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. Hi, Dave. My call. Sure. Uh, I think you're absolutely correct about local news uh, covering local issues, but that correspond that dinner that Trump didn't go to. Right. Uh, I think the I think those reporters are so full of themselves it would have just turned into a roast and it would have been Donald Trump on the spigot being roasted. Right. I, I think they were salivating at the thought of him even being there. I don't blame him for not being there. I don't I, either. Do you think his concern? I mean, he, okay. Obviously, there is a political value to him. You know, talking about the fake news and and going after the media. Um, is that overblown, or do you think national media there is a bias? Oh, definitely a bias. Oh, terribly. It's biased. Uh, I, I, it's so point, slanted towards uh, the hot topics, the right. transgender, you know, and, and they jump on all this stuff. But, yeah, the national, the, the big media people, they're, they are really biased uh, terribly. I, I don't even listen to them anymore. I just would listen to local people. Yeah, I... I yeah, I mean, thanks for calling. I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, like I say, it, the, the local news, and this is just my personal experience, and I know a lot of the reporters, and again, I, I, I have a pretty good idea of what their leanings are and their policies, and I'm not saying that sometimes it doesn't bleed into a story or something here or there, but as a general rule, the nature of local news is it's so, all right, what, what are we going to have on the 10 o'clock news? What are we going to have on the 6 o'clock news? You run out, you do the stories. I, I don't. 
I, I don't notice that. And again, you could find an example and say, well, look at this. But as a general rule, I don't see that on a daily basis. I do see that in the national media in the terms of the way stories are covered and the way that they are, are chosen. Now, does that mean that I think Trump is right to kind of play the us versus them thing? But no, but the flip side is when the, like outlets like the New York Times or the L.A. Times or whatever gets their back up and says, well, how dare you accuse us of bias? I'm like, do you have no self-awareness at all? Let's talk to Margie in Mequon. Margie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have had a war going on with People magazine for quite some time. People? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Without a doubt, and um, I encourage you to look into this because it is incredible. Every I've been a subscriber for years, and every time there is a political race of the magnitude of presidency, they always feature the different candidates right. and their families. Never once did they feature Trump. The last time I think they had anything on Trump was when Barron was born. Okay. As you can guess, it's a long time ago. Huh. So, so they've then, kind of got a blackout. They've got a blackout oh, on Trump, huh? Not, not a, you can't find a printed word. So then, when when he was voted in, and there were the inaugural balls, they had pictures, one tiny little square picture, that showed him taking. It was mm-hmm. like a two by two picture of him being sworn in, and the rest of it was other other people in their ball gowns and things like that. Never showed the president. Never showed his wife at the inaugural ball. Hmm. And they it- have never once featured the first family. And Absolutely. if Hillary Clinton had won, you suspect the coverage would have been different, huh? Oh, <laughs> the coverage would have been totally different. Yeah. And I can tell you with Obama, Michelle couldn't fart and they had an article about it. <laughs> she was in the damn magazine every every month. Um, yeah, well, there 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 is, I mean, she was clearly the the beautiful person. There there's no there's no question about that. I, you know, I, I, and again, I quickly get beyond my depth when, when we talk about People magazine because I don't think I've actually, even in a dentist's office or a doctor's office, I don't think I've, I've picked up a copy of uh, People magazine in a long, long time. But, but the point is, even if you want to focus on the more serious stuff, the, the substantive stuff, the substantive newspapers, I mean, I just don't think you can argue seriously that there is not a media bias in the way issues are presented. And let, let's let's face it, um, the, the, the way the campaign was covered, clearly there was this, this preconceived notion that, that Trump was going to lose, and there, there's been no honeymoon in the media uh, involving Donald Trump. I don't even remember, I don't remember any president who's had the overwhelmingly negative coverage. And I appreciate, by the way, that, that Trump invites some of this with uh, the... The, the tweets and things like that, but there's been no honeymoon. Steve on the South Side. Steve, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yes, I think there's terrible bias in the media, and here's where it, sometimes where it accumulates. One is, when it comes to a government shutdown, they always say the government shutdown. It's truly not a government shutdown, and it hasn't been since George Washington. Right. It's only a partial government shutdown. We even schedule them on our calendar. The next partial government shutdown is going to be called Memorial Day. The next partial government shutdown will be called Fourth of July. If Jimmy Carter or George Herbert Walker Bush were to die, we'd have a partial government shutdown for them. They're very common, very routine, even scheduled. But they'll never call it a partial government shutdown, right. and they'll call it a government shutdown, then they'll try to blame it on the Republicans, always. even though it's always, in the past, I can recall, when we had government shutdowns or partial government shutdowns due to the fact that the senators who were in charge 
in the Congress, which was even when it was controlled by the Democrats, right. did not put forth a budget. Right. And these were all budgetary reasons why we had a partial government shutdown. They made it sound like it was the end of the world and Republicans were responsible for it. And now that the Republicans are in office, now they can report on homelessness again. Right. But they no. couldn't do that when the Democrats had the White House. No, Steve, you're, you're exactly I mean, the, the shutdown is the thing. That's one of the reasons I was arguing, and I have been. I'm, I'm glad to see that they have avoid, averted the partial government shutdown because you know that that would have been – you know that would have been blamed on Paul Ryan. You know it would have been blamed on the Republicans who control the Senate. You know it would have been blamed on President Trump. That's just because it doesn't matter. Even you're right. Even when there's divided government, it's always the Republicans that have caused this. That fits into the particular agenda that is being advanced. And look, and I, I understand that some of the complaints about media bias can be overblown. I get that. But at the same time, what is frustrating to me is where there is this complete and total cluelessness, this lack of self-awareness, this, oh, there is no bias in the way we cover stories or the stories we choose to cover. I mean, really? Really? Let's talk to Brad in Oak Creek. Brad, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. I think it's uh, an interesting uh, bias. So I kind of, I ditched cable about a year ago. Uh, Actually, sorry, I don't listen to uh, talk radio as much. I maybe do about half an hour, hour a day, and that's it. We're glad to but, have you, Brad. I'm glad you picked this half hour to listen to. <laughs> I know. I just kind of just, everyone needs a break from everything. And what's interesting, I was telling your t- uh, call screener, when I wake up in the morning around 6 or so, I have these, like, news feeds, and I don't know how they get on my phone. It's 100% Trump, Trump, Trump. And it's just, it's just, because I'm removed from it, I don't watch CNN, I don't watch Fox anymore. You know, I just listen to eh, people around me, a little bit of talk radio, and that's that's my fill. But it's just interesting how much in the social media world it is just constant. I don't know how it gets on my phone. Uh, Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I I think, Brad, I I do think there's a lot of people who you're you're not necessarily seeing this right now in in TV ratings because, like, for example, cable TV ratings really, really high. But I, I... I think there's a little bit of a bubble going on because I know a lot of people who are exactly like you. They're just they, – they've kind of had it. There, there's some people who can't get enough. They just can't get enough. That's actually one of the balancing things you do when you do what I do for a living. It's, okay, how, how much of a particular thing are you going to do? Because there's some people who cannot get enough. Give me everything that's going on in Washington. I want to hear Trump 24-7. Um, then there's all sorts of other people who are going, I, I just I can't deal with everything that's going on. I just need to kick back, and I, I don't I, I don't want to hear all that type of stuff. There, there is this balancing, and I, I don't know how it's going to all play out. But, again, for this White House media correspondence dinner, for people who suggest that – now, is Trump using the media as, its whipping, as his whipping boy to gain some political points? Yes, but the media has been using Trump as its whipping boy for a while to try to sell newspapers and, and generate eyeballs watching TV. So um, both sides, neither side has clean hands. It's 1129. It's 11.36, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, breaking news. A federal judge. Nowadays, you almost hear, you almost know when the term is going to be a federal judge. um, It's almost never going to be good news. 
Um, federal District Court Judge James Peterson, who's relatively new on the bench, um, out of Madison, apparently ruled Friday blocking enforcement of a Wisconsin law that allows the state to detain pregnant women suspected of drug or alcohol abuse. This is called the, the cocaine mom law. Um, what the law does is it allows the state to treat fetuses as children in need of protection if the expectant mother's habitual lack of self-control in the use of alcoholic beverages, controlled substances, or controlled substance analogs exhibited to a severe degree poses a substantial risk substantial risk of harm to the fetus. So it, it's, okay, mom, mom is a drug addict. Mom is pregnant. Mom continues to take heroin, cocaine, whatever, during her pregnancy. Mom refuses to stop. The law allows that mom can be, for the good of the fetus, can be temporarily detained. Mom can be held to stop her from using drugs until she gives birth. And when she gives birth, you take the kid away or whatever. All right. Um, here's the case. It involves a former Wisconsin resident. Um, um, she's living in Medford in 2014 when she sought a pregnancy test, according to the lawsuit. Um, she tells the doctor that she had used methamphetamine and marijuana, but it stopped taking them. Tests showed that she was 14 weeks pregnant, had traces of the drug in her body. Taylor County judge ordered her an inpatient drug treatment. When she was refused, she was taken to the county jail for 18 years and for 18 days until she agreed to urinalysis throughout her pregnancy. The federal judge, appointed by Obama, by the way, in Madison, ruled that habitual lack of self-control and substantial risk to the physical health of the unborn child are not amenable to reasonably precise interpretation. He blocked enforcement of the state law um, statewide. Between 2005 and 2014, the state made claims of abuse of fetuses against 467 women uh, based on the law. In at least 152 of those cases, authorities removed children from their parents after birth. Okay, 414-799-1620, That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This cocaine mom law has been on the books in Wisconsin, I believe, since 1998. 20 years. 20 years. You now have a federal judge who has decided this is unconstitutional. You cannot, you cannot detain a woman who for which the evidence is that there is a substantial the evidence shows that there is a substantial risk that um there will be harm to the fetuses because of the mother's habitual lack of self-control. So this federal judge says, I don't think that, I think that's too vague. I think that discriminates against the rights of the mother. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm sorry, the world has gone mad. The world has just, in my opinion, absolutely gone mad. If you had a mother who after giving birth, was engaging in behavior that was posing a substantial risk to the child, leaving cocaine around, 
letting the kid have access to drugs um, because she's so whacked out on drugs that she's not taking care of the kids. You would take the kids away and you might put her in prison for child neglect. This is the flip side of that. You have a woman who is pregnant. And again, I'm not saying that every woman should be locked up if they're pregnant to make sure that they're going to not have a glass of wine or something like that. But that's not what this standard is. Should we treat fetuses as children in need of protection if mom is a drug abuser? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. A federal judge in Madison appears to think, well, no, this is just too vague, and if bad stuff happens to the fetus, well, bad stuff happens to the fetus. 414-799-1620. Did the judge get it right, or has the world gone mad? We discuss next. It's 1141, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I am voting with the world has absolutely gone mad. To me, this cocaine mom law is a very, very reasonable thing. There is no question when you look at the problems of children who are born to drug-addicted mothers, this is an effort to try to minimize that problem. And once again, this demonstrates this problem we have where we do not recognize standing of unborn children. 414-799-1620 is the number. We discuss next. It's 1142. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 11.45, Jeff Wagner, 6.20 WTMJ. This is the story of my blood pressure is going up. For the last 20 years, 20 years, Wisconsin has had a cocaine mom law. The cocaine mom law says, essentially, if mom is pregnant and mom continues to exhibit a a lack of self-control with regard to using drugs. I'm simplifying this, but mom's taking cocaine, mom's taking heroin, and we're not just talking about a one-off type of thing. Mom is doing this constantly, and mom refuses to get treatment or whatever, and the fetus, the unborn child, is in danger. The cocaine mom law allows the state to detain mom until she gives birth. The idea being we, we, we protect children um, from from the moment that they are, are born. We protect them from abuse. And if a newborn child, if a child is born and a week later goes home and mom gives the kid cocaine, well, you're going to take the child from mom. You're going to do whatever you can to protect mom, to protect the, the child. So the theory of, from this law that has been in effect for 20 years, 20 years is that the fetus has has rights too and if you protect the child 30 seconds after it's born from a mother who is engaging in this reckless sort of behavior well then you should be able to protect the child while again protect the fetus well apparently you have a liberal federal judge in madison who has problems with this law that's been on the books for 20 years he is now just he struck down the law says i find this to be unconstitutional i think it's too vague to say a habitual lack of self-control and a substantial risk to the physical health of the unborn child, which is, again, easy for Judge Peterson, a Barack Obama appointee, to, to say. I think everybody understands what is going on here. There's been 152 cases where the children in the last 20 years have been removed from their parents after birth, 467 women who have been detained, or at least the states have made claims of abuse of fetuses. At some point in time, 
I mean, are we really going to say that these children who are born with all the problems that come with being a cocaine baby or heroin baby, that they have absolutely no rights? And that is precisely apparently what this federal judge in Madison is saying. It is disgraceful. And in my opinion, that this has not been a problem. This is, you know, this has not been a problem for 20 years. The law has been on the books. And now you find some relatively new federal judge who's out there. I don't know, trying to make a statement and wants to stand up for the rights of the drug-abusing mothers. Hmm. Let's start with Stephanie in Delavan. Stephanie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. Um, I am actually a foster mother of um, children who were exposed to heroin before they were born. Mm-hmm. And their first mother is um, currently pregnant with number three. Right. Um not showing up for any of her drug tests or anything like that. And unfortunately, there's nothing uh, legally that can be done in order to, in order to protect the unborn baby because she hasn't um, given a positive drug test, even though she's not even going to the drug test. So I guess knowing what can happen to the children, because I'm witnessing what can happen firsthand in my own home right now, right. Um, I think the main thing is that if, it's, if there are um, previous circumstances where you know that she used while pregnant and that it has affected the children, obviously of no fault of their own, they're going to have, you know, they're going to experience the ramifications of this for the rest of their life. Um, there needs to be something done to protect the unborn child because they, they didn't choose to be exposed to these things. Now, Stephanie, the, the two... The two- foster children that you have who were born to the mom who was using heroin during her pregnancy, would it be fair to say that they they have a number of developmental issues? Um, some are some are apparent now, yes. Um, yeah. There are some that may not show up until later or they may not show up at all, um, but there are certain things now that they're experiencing yes because of what yeah. she chose to do while she was pregnant with them. Yeah, and I guess, that's what's just so frustrating to me that that you know there, there doesn't appear to be anybody that's willing to stand up for the, the rights of the child who, exactly. you know, if if mom is going to engage in this sort of reckless behavior, fine, we can't stop mom from getting pregnant. All right. Um, but when mom is pregnant, if she's going to make that choice and she's going to continue to put her unborn children in danger by exhibiting this type of behavior, it seems to me ridiculous to say that the state doesn't have an interest in trying to you know, look out for the fetus until the fetus is born. Then you take the kid away from mom and she can go back and do all the heroin she wants. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, thanks for calling. Now, this is just so frustrating. And again, this law has been on the books for 20 years. Um, you know, that Wisconsin's cocaine law, mom law, is is in many respects, it's a model for other states. And there hasn't been any problem. But now you've got one federal judge who's decided, well, I, I just don't think that we want to st- – I think it's too vague. Well, okay, judge. I mean, I don't think anybody has any trouble interpreting what the meaning of the law is. If you're taking cocaine or you're doing heroin during your pregnancy and you refuse to stop, well, sorry, you know, you need to be – put in some sort of facility where you cannot continue to do it, your baby should have some rights as well. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good 
Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Real well, thank you. Oh, this is an aggravating story. See, I don't care about how people feel about abortion or whatever. This is a situation where you have a woman who is engaging in reckless behavior that is putting the, in light the jeopardy of the, the development and the lives of her unborn children, and we're not where apparently the state is being told by a federal judge it doesn't have the rights to stand up for those those fetuses. I just re- I reject that, period. Well, uh, number one, like I was telling you, Skinner, it, there's no continuity. I mean, if you if you leave your child in a, in a car unattended for three minutes while you run in and something, right. you know, whatever, you're, you're whatever. You know. Right, sure. Or if for some if for some reason you happen to, you know, domestic violence or something like that, where, where you injured, you know, a woman in your car and the fetus dies, you're charged with murder. Yep. So that that doesn't make any sense. And then then you get into the whole controversy of, you know, everything from seatbelts to secondhand smoke. Right. I mean, so I don't, I don't, I, I don't get the linear... I, I, well, I guess the recognition is, in the minds of this federal judge, is that you know a, a fetus has no rights, that the state has no interest in trying to protect the rights of, of the fetus a, at all. And I just, maybe that's the, maybe that's the linear transition from Roe versus Wade, but you're exactly right. You know, I mean, if, if, if you, like the automobile accident, you're talking about the drunk driver kills the pregnant woman, you can be charged with causing the death of the pregnant woman. Why can't, and, and the fetus, why can't we protect the fetus from the mom, the, from the cocaine mom, who you know darn well is continuing to do that? Well, the, the, yeah, exactly. And then the whole thing is, is there's just no, there's no continuity. I yeah. mean, right, right. That's it, the part that's frustrating. Yeah, it is. And thanks for, And what's frustrating to me, again, is you have a law that's on the books for 20 years that I think has actually probably worked pretty well and has undoubtedly contributed to, at least in probably a hundred, probably a couple hundred cases, um, children who would otherwise have been born drug addicted or with all the problems that come with being born with heroin or cocaine in your system, at least the kids have more of a fighting chance. Don't they deserve that? And apparently, there's at least one federal judge who thinks the law, after 20 years of operation, is too vague. This is why federal judges, and this is why Supreme Court battles and things like that are so incredibly important, because federal judges, the closest thing that we have to kings and queens in this country, and um, one judge issuing now an injunction saying, nope, the state can't enforce this, I am sure, I am confident that Brad Schimmel will appeal this, and I am hoping that higher courts will, once again, as they have done in the past with this particular judge, recognize that he's, he's wrong and uh, reverse this. Um, at least for the sake of um, unborn children everywhere, you can hope, you can only hope.